Father, thank you for the privilege to proclaim your word this morning. God, we need you to come along beside it in power to bring it to bear in each one of our lives. Thank you for the blessing of being a conduit to your grace. God, but may just you be heard this morning. May your word resound in the hearts and minds of your people. And that if there is anyone in my hearing who does not know you, they may come out with a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our topic this morning spans all of the Bible. We're going to take a step away from our series in 1 Corinthians. Pastor Reed has come down with strep throat, so he's not able to take this morning. So I've, we're going to take this morning in a slightly different direction. We're going to look at John chapter 4. But we're going to look at it through the lens of worship. The whole biblical story can be summed up into this one theme. And if your life, if our lives are not controlled by it, the Bible claims, God's word claims that we're missing true life. That you're missing life. Of course you're living. Our hearts are beating. But your soul is dead. I had a friend who wasn't following the Lord ask me, what am I missing from not following Jesus? And by God's grace, the Lord led me to say, you're missing life. You're missing true life. You're missing real life. He was at first offended, but later he came to know the Lord and he came back to me and said, you were right. You were right. I was missing life. And so our theme this morning is worship. The opening pages of the Bible say that God created us to be worshipers. And we are worshipers regardless of whether we worship God or we worship ourselves. But in the beginning, Adam and Eve, instead of worshiping God, they turned and they worshiped themselves and then became to worship idols. And in doing that, they were cut off from the very source of life. And the rest of Scripture can be cast as the story of God restoring true worship, the true source of life to his people. So I'm going to challenge us to think about this topic of worship broader than we're used to. We'll often think about worship as what we just came out of, singing songs to God. But the biblical vision of worship is far broader than that. And so we're going to dive into this vast theme but first, we need to get oriented. There's one, um, one truth that we need to see clearly before we can dive into our text. And it's this. It's the shape of worship. Worship has a distinct shape to it. And it's this. That God reveals himself, and then we respond. God reveals himself. He's the initiator, and then we respond. He makes himself known, and then we respond in faith. The, sh- the shape of worship shouldn't surprise any of us who are, who are believers in Jesus, because that's exactly what happened in your salvation. God met you, and then you responded to his revelation in faith. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 puts it this way. It says, God called you before the foundations of the world according to the good pleasure of his will. 
And then verse 12, that we might live for the praise of his glory. So did you hear that? God called you. So God revealed, he initiated. And then that you might live for the praise of his glory. We respond. That's the basic shape of worship. God reveals himself and we respond. And so from the time of Moses, the the most prominent way God revealed himself to the people was through the tabernacle. God gave Moses specific instructions for how to build this building, this tent that would house his glory for the people. And every part of the tabernacle was specifically designed to communicate the character and nature of God out to its very dimensions. It was a perfect square communicating to the people God's utter perfection. And then this tabernacle became the centerpiece of Israel's worship. And God commanded fitting responses from the people. They were supposed to bring sacrifices, atone for sins, have festivals, all related to the revelation of God in the center of the nation, in the tabernacle. And our response, that fitting response that God calls out from us because of his revelation, that's worship. Our response is worship. So in the New Testament, one of the words that is used to describe worship is the term liturgeo, which will sound somewhat familiar to you because it's where we get the word liturgy. Liturgy. And it's often translated in the New Testament as service. So we, we call our, our gathering services because they are just that. They are a fitting response to God's revelation to us in the gospel. But our services are not just the only way that we worship God. It's one way that God calls a fitting response to him. We, re, we return praise to him. We proclaim his words. These are fitting responses to God's revelation, but it doesn't stop there. So now we're oriented. We have this basic shape of worship that is true all throughout Scripture, that God reveals himself and then invites a fitting response to his revelation. Now this morning we're going to ask, what is the source of true worship? What does it flow from? What is the essence of God's revelation to us? In the Old Covenant... It was this tabernacle that was in the center of the camp. But the the tabernacle and then the temple were all pointing forward to a greater reality. Look with me to the opening chapter of John's gospel. Would you turn with me there? John chapter 1 verse 14. It's absolutely astounding how John opens up his gospel. He writes here in verse 14, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we observed His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we don't see clearly in that translation is that phrase, took up residence among us, literally translates to, He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the word made flesh that tabernacled among us. 
So Jesus reveals God's glory as the tabernacle in Israel revealed God's glory, but better. And it's this truth that we're going to press into this morning. Jesus is the source of true worship. Jesus is the source of true worship. So now turn ahead in the book of John to chapter 4. And this is where we'll be for the remainder of the morning. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. I'll be reading from the ESV. Please follow along as I read. This is God's word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. For the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink or to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do, who you do not know, what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. May God bless add his blessing to the reading of his word. There are three parts to this account that we're going to focus on. First, John sets the scene for us. And then he relates an unlikely conversation that ends with a profound conf- conclusion. So we'll take each part in turn. First, John sets the scene, the unlikely conversation, and then profound confl- conf- conclusion. So first, let's see how John sets this scene. In the very first paragraph, he's preparing for us what's to come, what's about to unfold. So what does he want us to see? What does he want us to know? Well, he wants us first to know that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus is on his way from Judea in the south, headed to Galilee in the north. He's traveling there because there's been this growing controversy about John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is expanding and expanding and John's is contracting and it's become the talk of Judea. Wanting to remove himself from this controversy, he heads north to Galilee. Now this reality didn't trouble either John or Jesus, but Jesus wanted, he wanted space to minister. And so to travel from Judea to Galilee, you have to pass through Samaria. Samaria is a, Samaria is a detested place in this time in Israel's history. Now, most people, when they were traveling from Judea to Galilee, they would go straight through Samaria, but many people went around the region because it was so detested. Now, there was no political distinction between Jews and Samaritans, but there was a really strong ethnic and religious distinction. And it all went back to the time of the exile, back in 722 BC. The region of Samaria was captured by the nation of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, what they did was they took all the elite, the educated elite, removed them from Samaria And then they resettled the area with foreigners. And the Jews who had remained, they intermarried with these foreign settlers. And their children became an odd mix of both Gentile and Jew. And their religion reflected it. And this intermarrying was was completely... um, Forbidden in the Old Testament. So after the exiles, as Jews came back into the land, these uh, Samaritans were half-breeds. They had completely um, polluted Jewish religion. And the divide got so bad that in 400 BC, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they had rejected all the books of the Torah, or all the books of the Tanakh, all of the Old Testament books except the Torah, the first five books. That was their Bible. 
So it's not an overstatement to say that Jews were hated. Or sorry, Samaritans were hated by Jews. But Samaria was on the way and Jesus had to pass through it. But it's not just because it was on the way that he had to pass through it. He wants us, John wants us to see that it, in verse 31 that Jesus had to pass through it because he was doing the Father's will. Look with me at verse 31. It says, after Jesus, this is after Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. His disciples return to him and they say this, urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus went through Samaria because he knew that it was the Father's will. He had work to do. He had a divine appointment to keep. And John wants that us to see that right in this opening paragraph. And the second thing he wants us to see, he wants us to know whose well was in this field. So on this journey, Jesus comes to a field, and in the field is a well. It's a well whose story goes all the way back to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. No doubt John brings our attention to this well because it's the middle of the day. The sixth hour means that it's noon, and Jesus is thirsty. But he tells us that this well belonged to Jacob. He's hinting, as all good authors do, when he says it's Jacob's well. See, the Samaritans, they drew their lives from their spiritual life from the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That was the source of their spiritual life. And Jesus was going to directly challenge that. So now that the scene is set, John relates the unlikely conversation. So this Samaritan woman comes down to draw water. And it's the middle of the day. She's clearly a social outcast. We know that because hauling water is a difficult task. In this area, at that time, towns were built up on hills. And the well was often quite a ways away from the town. So doing it in the middle of the day when the sun was at its hottest was a decision to torture yourself. You you wouldn't only make this trip once. You had to make multiple trips back and forth to the well because you had to get water for drinking, for cleaning, for feeding the animals. There was a lot of water that had to be hauled back and forth. And she did it in the middle of the day when she wouldn't be bothered by anybody. Generally, women would do this task all together in the morning hours, but she came alone. But this time, there was something, something different in her regular routine. There was a man, a Jewish man, a rabbi. And Jesus was the first to break the heavy silence. Thirsty, he said to her, woman, give me a drink. And she was noticeably startled by all of the taboos that he just crossed. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? 
If you're here this morning and you feel like you don't belong here, you don't belong in this church crowd, listen to how Jesus just speaks right through and steps over every socially constructed barrier to give her life, to offer her life. He can give life to anyone, anywhere. And so Jesus moves in. And he says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's revealing himself to this woman. If she only knew who he was and what he would do, it would change her life. He would give her living water, soul-satisfying water. This living water is a picture that takes us all the way back to the opening pages in Genesis. In Eden, there was a river that flowed into four rivers that watered all of the earth. It's a picture of life flowing out from its original source, purest source, unsullied by sin. And if she only knew who he was, she would ask and he would give her this life. New life, true life, pure life, eternal life. But she doesn't know who he is, so she asks in verse 12, are you greater than Jacob? Yes, he's greater than Jacob's. Jacob's well only satisfies temporarily. When you drink it, you get thirsty again. But the living water that Jesus promises will never run dry. And she still thinks that they're talking about water, plain old water. But Jesus is talking about something far more essential. He's talking about spiritual refreshment. He's talking about life, a new kind of life. Life that finds its source in Jesus. Jesus is the well of this new life. He is the source, not the patriarchs. The Samaritans believed that the patriarchs were the source that revealed God, but Jesus is the source. But she still thinks that they're talking about plain old water. So she asked verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to do this task all the time. Have to go down to the well, get water, come back up. But Jesus goes right to her heart. Reading from verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Isn't he so gentle in exposing her sin? He is so gentle. The woman answers him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Five husbands. Can you imagine if your promiscuous sexual history was just laid out in the open like this. Her life was a wreck. Partner after partner. She was parched. And it's this thirst that Jesus wanted to satisfy. Most of our world thinks that anything that gets you some peace is good. 
I'm sure you've heard it said, well, well, whatever works for you. The problem is that when you drink anything other than Jesus to address your thirst for life, the peace that it, it, it may bring a refreshing peace momentarily, but it has a deadly afterbite. It does not satisfy us eternally. So we must contemplate Jesus' promise here. He promises this woman eternal life, eternal satisfaction. We live in a pragmatic world that seeks anything that will give us a sense of peace, that will help us achieve mindfulness. But our favored remedies may get us this sense of peace, but Jesus promises life, period. And his his invitation to us is to leave your dry well and come to Jesus. Even as believers, followers of Jesus, we can lose the well. We can lose focus. And we can draw our life from dry wells. But Jesus beckons us here to come back and draw from him. Because we are thirsty people. We're all thirsty people. Thirsty for true life. And we are the kind of people that God is seeking to make his worshipers. We are the kind of people that Jesus is seeking to come and satisfy. Do you remember the story back in the Old Testament where Abraham was looking for a wife for his son Isaac? So he sends a servant back to his homeland and his servant arrives at a well. And it is at that well where he finds the future bride. And we see this episode replayed right here before our eyes. Jesus comes to the well seeking his bride, his people. Jesus has come to give himself to thirsty people like us. So the question is, will we have him? Will we allow him to satisfy? Jesus reveals her heart so specifically that she confesses in verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. But instead of addressing her carnivorous thirst, she turns. She Obviously, this conversation is getting a little too personal, a little uncomfortable, so she changes the topic. She says, well, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and we think about worship completely differently. Some people say that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Other people... My people say that you're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus doesn't let her get away with it. He cuts right through. Because he is concerned. This conversation is going exactly in the direction that he wants it to go. He wants to offer her a kind of worship that she knows nothing about. So here we come to the profound conclusion of this unlikely conversation. Jesus replies in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he cuts right through her objection and says, when the time comes and is now here, you're not going to worship here on this mountain, and you're not going to worship there in Jerusalem. And her objection disappears. Because in Jesus, something fundamental is changing about the nature of worship. The temple has become obsolete. True worship does, he says, comes from the Jews. God did reveal himself truly to the Jews in the past. But there is coming a time that when that way of relating to God will no longer be in action. It will be extinct. When Jesus says the hour is coming, he refers to his death and resurrection. Jesus refers to his death as that hour all throughout the Gospel of John. But he also says that this time is now because he is in her midst. He is the new temple that is in her midst. Jesus is death and resurrection are going to make possible a new and greater development in worship. Worship to the Father. Worship in spirit and truth. Now these actions, or these aspects of spirit and truth, they can't be separated from one another. You can't have one person who worships in spirit and another person who worships in truth because what that phrase means is it's, it's talking about a new development in worship itself. And this new development is God's worship is now going to be God-centered worship rather than temple-centered worship. In verse 23, we read, God is spirit. And this means that God is spirit-like instead of flesh-like. He's invisible, life-giving, choosing when and where and how to reveal himself. And since Jesus the Messiah has arrived, worship is response to God now making himself known through the Spirit, and through truth. God, God, instead of God revealing himself through the tabernacle, the Father is now making himself known through the work of the Spirit, opening people's eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And then our response in worship is responding in faith. So we see the... the Father's glory in Jesus through the work of the Spirit, and then we respond to it in faith. So the shape of worship remains the same. God reveals, and we respond. And we see here that the source of worship is Jesus. He is the perfect revelation of God. Our worship is a response to God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The prophets had promised a time when worship would no longer be focused on a temple and when instead the whole earth would be filled with God's knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And this time has arrived in Jesus and will find its summation when he comes again in glory. And so there's three implications from this for our worship. The first is that worship is not geographically fixed. 
And worship is borderless. And worship flows from and is vitally connected to Jesus. So I'll say those again. Worship is not geographically fixed. Worship is borderless. And worship flows from and is vitally connected to Jesus. So first, worship is not geographically fixed. So what I mean by that is there's, there's no holy places. Our world is filled with temples and shrines, all claiming to be places where you can come and experience the divine. But as Solomon said, and then Stephen said later, that God does not live in temples created by man, created by human hands. Instead, God came to earth. He lived this perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, rose victorious on the third day, gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to point us to Jesus, and respond to him by faith. There's no place on the earth where God dwells except in the lives of his people, the church. And when we gather, we experience him in a unique way. So we worship here, and then when we leave here, we take worship with us into every day of our lives. Worship is not geographically fixed. But second, worship is also borderless. Because God isn't contained by a temple. He's not bound by borders. He's on the move. There's no people who is beyond his reach. This text shows us so powerfully that God pursues outsiders. The Father is seeking worshipers from all tribes, all nations, all peoples. And the worshipers God has made belong one to another. He has made us into a body by Jesus. And by his grace we are members of this global body of worshipers. And so if God doesn't regard borders... When he seeks and he finds worshipers, we better not construct borders to keep brothers and sisters away from us. We need to continue to pursue and to seek out and to welcome people of all nations, all tribes, all colors, all backgrounds to draw from the well of Jesus. And third, and most importantly, Worship flows from and is vitally connected to Jesus. This is absolutely essential. So if you don't get anything else this morning, walk away with this. That true worship flows from seeing God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. True worship flows from seeing God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is daily fed by being vitally connected to him. So a worshiper is created when God, by the Spirit, opens our eyes to see something of the glory of God in Jesus. And this sight creates our response, faith, a life that is willing to be laid down in praise, submission, and obedience to him. It's not, though it's not a one-time sight, as if we see the beauty of Jesus and we believe in him and that's it. No, worship must continue in the life of a believer and it's fueled by ongoing sights of God's glory in Jesus. The gift of the Spirit is for this express purpose. The Spirit makes us, makes Jesus known to us. By the Spirit, we see Jesus' glory again and again in the Word. When we sing, 
about his glory, when we serve one another in response to his glory. And worship flows out of this vital connection to Jesus. Jesus is the source of our worship. So brothers and sisters, draw near to him again and again and again and again. We'll have opportunity to do that as we turn to the table. But let the revelation of Jesus Christ fuel your response to him and experience life that is true life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are such a blessed people that you have given your very self to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would fill us so much with your Holy Spirit that we might see and feast on who Jesus is, that we might be able to respond to him in lives of faith. God, bless us, your people, as we turn to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.